Welcome to Sand Pebbles. The purpose of this series is to make philosophy accessible and understandable to the working public. I have here our resident theologian, Harvard theologian, Harvard philosopher and Buddhist, Dr. Hogan. And he has some rebuttal or objections to my comments regarding truth and ethics. Yeah, yeah, what's your next objection? Beyond the basic conception of Buddhism that I discuss, the logic, negation, 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 dukkha, 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 there is the two truths of Janagarbha. Janagarbha conceived the two truths, and in that he argued the issue with Buddhism is, and this gets to your truth question, actually, conventionally, assertions are true, but ultimately, they are empty because ultimately everything is empty of being. So the question becomes, what's the relationship between the assertion of conventional truth, like the law of non-contradiction, and ultimate truth? And the Bhavi Viveka says, that's B-H-A-V-I-V-E-K-A, Bhavi Viveka says that there's a tension, a constantly vacillating tension between the two truths that is unstable irony. Now, in stable irony, the opposites are resolved. In unstable irony, which is the case with the two truths, in unstable irony, it's never resolved. It's an eternal vacillation back and forth between the two things. So it allows all conventional truths to exist and to be affirmed, while at the same time, and this is what negates your Aristotle, at the same time, ultimately, it doesn't exist. Yeah, you're playing with words again. <laughs> well, probably with it. I don't think this logic can be refuted, but try. Well, that's, that's not logic. I mean, once you reject principles of identity, non-contradiction, the excluded metal, you no longer have logic. Anything goes. You don't get up in the morning and say, well, maybe my battery's charged or maybe it's not charged. They're both true at the same time. I mean... Either one's true or the other isn't. I mean, you might not know it, whether your battery's charged or not, but your whole existence as a human being, thinking is based on the fact that either this is true or it's not true. Now, maybe ultimately in the mind of God, none of it matters. You know, one day, I mean, that, you know, I, I don't think God thinks rationally. I mean, reason assumes that you're thinking about something and the nature of God is he doesn't need to think about anything but himself. You know, I think reason is is a human, whatever you want to call it, a tribute, but it's human. And in order for it to be human, you got to have these three principles. Otherwise, you're just another random thought. I mean, you're, there is no truth. There is no falsehood. And, you know, you can call that whatever you want. You can give it nice words, spontaneous truth. You know, at the same time that we exist, we are full of potential, but you're just playing with words. You know, they're pleasant words, okay. but they're just words. Okay. Let's go beyond words. Okay. Let's stop calling it logic. I think the point of the reasoning, the point of the insight, is soteriological. That's a philosophical term that means that the purpose is to animate your moral action. Okay? Soteriological. S-O-T-I-E-R-O-L-O-G-Y. The point of the Buddhist reasoning is to make you realize that you should not be attached to objects, your tables or anything, or people. You should not be attached to anything specific, but you should act in such a way that your action 
will have meaning beyond it. It's altruism. It's it's Jesus's ethic. The Gospel of John begins with the, uh, you know, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was God. No, that's theology. That's theology. We're getting ahead. I'm going to Jesus' parables. In the parables, and Jesus was unique. He was a great rabbi, and there were many parables at the time that he lived, but his parables were completely unique. And Harvey Cox told me. All right, but before we get to that, my point is this, this Buddhist stuff, again, what you're saying sounds nice, but... Without the Aristotelian logic, it's meaningless, right? I mean, if you want to sit in a corner in some hermit monastery and think about the wholeness of the one or the oneness in the whole, that Buddhist logic works, right? But if you want to step out of that corner into the real world and do something, whether it's catch a fish or build a building or give food to the poor or take food from the poor, whatever you want to do in the real world, you're going to have to accept Aristotelian logic. You can't just walk around and say, oh, well, well, you know, everything is and everything is not. It's not human. It's not human. You're not disagreeing with me. Aristotle is conventional truth. There is no conventional, non-conventional truth. There's truth. There's There's no, something is either true or false. Maybe we'll never know what is truth, but. You're married to the conventional truth. You don't yeah, I'm not calling conventional truth. Yeah, it's yeah. truth. Okay, okay, okay. All right, my, I admit that your version sounds better. It's poetic, and that's why a lot of people like it. I mean, it's like a drug. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's very beautiful sounding language, but that's all it is. If you actually want to do something, if you actually want to be human and not a god, because uh, I admit it, maybe maybe God thinks that way. But I'm not a god, I'm human. And I have to think using Aristotelian logic. There's just no other way to do it. Okay, let's go back to Jesus. His parables were unique in that, as Harvey Cox explained to me in Harvard Divinity School once, there's three features to his parables. There is the harmony of nature. The lion lies down by the lamb. There is a moral message. In other words, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. It's a reversal of what you ordinarily, conventionally think is the order of the world. And then the third thing he called a Zen slap, where Jesus makes you completely invert the way you look at the world to understand the parable. And if you don't do that, you won't understand the parable. You know, Jesus is actually similar to the Buddhist logic I've been talking about. The third point is you invert it. And the best example he ever gave me, and I I never understood this parable until Harvey explained it. It's the parable of the coin. Jesus is confronted, as he often was, by challengers who wanted to expose him as illogical. <laughs> Let's use that word. A contradiction. A hypocrite. Jesus said, have you the coin? Meaning, Jesus did not carry the coin. The coin test was, do you pay Caesar taxes or not? Okay? And Jesus' response is, have you the coin? And they produce the coin. And Jesus says, you know, this is a picture of Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. But the most significant fact about the parable is that Jesus did not have the coin. He could either... Possess it or pay Caesar. 
And so like Robert F. Kennedy. Robert F. Kennedy never bought coffee. His staff had to pay for coffee because he, he thought he was in a country club and he never carried cash. Now, Jesus, of course, is not in a country club. How do you know that? So, okay, respond. It's not different from the Buddhist juxtaposition of conventional truth and ultimate truth. Yeah, it may not be. I'm not arguing for, you know, it's a Christian argument. I mean, I, yeah, I don't really understand your point. I mean, you're talking about revelation and stuff. As I admit it, I mean, Christian philosophy cannot get you to Christianity. It requires a leap of faith. And No, no. no. The parable of Jesus can be understood philosophically. It doesn't yeah. require faith. Yeah, I don't the think The point so. is, you don't? Well, I think it requires a lot of assumptions that you really can't make philosophically. I mean, like right now, you said he obviously didn't have coin because he was poor, but I don't think that's necessarily true. Oh, no, 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 no. I didn't say that. RFK didn't have money because he thought he was in a country club. Jesus didn't have money because he wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, you say that, but it's not a philosophical truth. I mean, it's a, maybe a historical truth, and frankly, based on my history of him, I, I don't think it's true. I think he came from a very wealthy Oh, okay, family. okay. You know, the, the existential facts don't matter. The point of the answer to the people who tried to contradict him was that you need not owe anything to Caesar. You owe everything to God. But I thought he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give unto God what is God's. Except that he had no coin. Yeah, he didn't have anything to give Caesar. Exactly. And he wanted nothing to do with Caesar. He owed everything to God, and that's all they cared about. Well, I never heard it interpreted that way. It's a good interpretation. That's why Harvey Cox is brilliant. Mm. He's brilliant. And, you know, when he retired, he had the very famous chair, the plumber chair goes back to the 17th century. It's quite famous. And it included grazing rights in Harvard Yard. So when he retired, he asked to bring a cow into <laughs> Harvard Yard. Or maybe it was a lamb, but they allowed it. They allowed him to bring an animal into Harvard Yard because he, he said he, he always wanted to exercise grazing rights. <laughs> yeah. Quite historic. It's being celebrated this week, in fact. There's a, an anniversary of the, the plumber chair. It's being celebrated. But yeah, he had it. Val, uh, I think we're going to have to take up the other matters later. <laughs>